from a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Tracy Chevalier is the author of eight novels, including her latest At the Edge of the Orchard, which follows a 19th century Ohio family's troubled time with the family orchard. The story travels across time and space into Gold Rush era California, where the past makes an unexpected return. Chevalier's second novel, Girl with a Pearl Earring, was an international bestseller and adapted into a film. Tracy Chevalier will be at Thurber House on Monday, March 21st. Welcome to Craft, Tracy Chevalier. Thanks for having me. Well, I am pleased to talk to you again. We talked uh, about three years ago when you were uh, with the Thurber House and uh, with a book then. So welcome back with a, a brand new book with some relationship to the state of Ohio. It just keeps appearing in your fiction. I know, it's just a gift that keeps giving. Mm-hmm. That's what Ohio is. Right. Well, that's uh, because you went to college here, as I recall. You just can't escape it. It's such a powerful presence. <laughs> yes, I went to Oberlin, mm-hmm. and um, the uh, this new book kind of emerged from my research in the, when I was researching The Last Runaway. The Last Runaway was set in um, 1850, Ohio, right near Oberlin, and... Uh, for part of the research, it was about the Underground Railroad, but I was also reading all kinds of things that just talked about Ohio in the 19th century generally. And one of the things I read was The Botany of Desire by Michael Pollan. And it's a book about humans' relationships to different types of plants. So there are sections on apples, tulips, marijuana, and potatoes. Very interesting combination. <laughs> I know, I know. But I read the section on apples, and because he, it was all about Johnny Appleseed, who, as every school child in America can tell you, um, spread apple trees through uh, 19th century Ohio and into Indiana. And that, it was that research where I got the spark for the next book. Mm-hmm. So, Johnny Appleseed, um, you know, you've heard the song that I'm not going to attempt to sing, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, he's popular in children's literature. You've got a different take on him, and he seems like a much different character in your much more adult-oriented literature. Tell me about the transition that you experienced researching the mythical character and finding out the reality. Well, it was Michael Pollan who did it. Um, you can blame him if you want, but okay. he, in this section of, of his book, he sort of debunks the myth about Johnny Appleseed. And, you know, we learn as kids that he, uh, Johnny Appleseed gave away bags, sacks of apple seeds and planted them. People planted them everywhere. And he encouraged them to eat apples because it was healthy for you. And he was a sort of lovable eccentric who talked to animals and went barefoot and slept in the woods and wore a tin pot on his head. Um, And, some of this is actually true. He did wear very odd clothes. He went barefoot. He was vegetarian. Um, but he was also actually quite a shrewd businessman. Um, he sold trees. He didn't give it all away. And the trees that he sold, he grew from apple seeds that he gathered from a cider mill in um, western Pennsylvania. He would do this every year get them there, and then bring them west, and he'd canoe along all the rivers and streams of Ohio. And um, the thing about apple trees, that uh, the botanical point that Pollen makes, is that most apple trees, if you grow them from seeds, they tend to produce sour apples most mm-hmm. of the time. If you want to have sweet apples for eating, 
you have to graft from uh, a, a sweet tree, which means you take a branch from that tree and you, um, you go through this process of inserting that branch into another tree and then it grows into, um, into the apple trees. And most apple trees now, most fruit trees are, are grafted. Lots of grafting goes on. But uh, Johnny Appleseed didn't, his name, real name was John Chapman. He didn't believe in um, grafting. He thought it went against God's nature and what, we, what God wanted us to do. So um, most of the trees he sold would have produced sour fruit. And as Pollen points out, um, that, this was not a problem because most people in Ohio were drunk in the 19th century because it was quite a hard life. Um, settlers tended to drink a lot of cider and um, also Applejack, which is this kind of crude brandy, apple brandy you make from from uh, cider. And when I was reading this, and so it's really odd that he had this reputation, this kind of myth grew out of, uh, out of long after he was dead, um, it was actually, I think, the Temperance Society, the Women's Temperance Society, uh, much later, many years later, uh, sort of resurrected him and, um, and and changed him because they didn't want apple growers to grow so many sour apples for cider. They were trying to get them to stop producing alcohol. So they, they um, conjured up this mythical figure of Johnny Appleseed. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just thought this was wonderful and hilarious. And when I was reading it, I had this vision of a couple, a, a pioneer couple settling in Ohio and fighting over apple trees. One of them wants sour apples to drink and the other wants sweet apples to eat. And um, from that, the, the, the story of the Goodenough family, that's the name of the family I made up, um, who, who migrate, they leave Connecticut, and in the 1830s, they go to settle in Ohio, and they keep having to go west in Ohio because they discover when they get there that there are a lot of settlers before them. And in the end, they have to go to this area of northwest Ohio, which was the last to be um, settled because it was so awful, and it was called the Black Swamp. So you can kind of imagine what it was like. Right. And a lot of people ended up settling there because they got stuck in the mud. It was so bad that it broke the legs of their horses or broke the axles of their wagons. There was a, a notorious road sort of to the east of Toledo, southeast of Toledo, that was was so bad that there was it was lined with inns of people who had broken down on the road. And then they thought, well, we'll just build an inn here for the other people who are going to break down on this road. And that's how they ended up getting settlers in the area. And so the good enoughs do this. They end up settling in the Black Swamp um, and trying to grow apples. Right. As a uh, former resident of that area, I can tell you that not a lot changed uh, <laughs> in, in that time. I grew up near Toledo, and it still feels like, you know, you you must be settling there because something broke on your car, something <laughs> along those lines. So it, a lot of sympathy I have with your Doug, characters. you're going to have your past all phoning you up after this interview. It's like, what are you saying about our lovely part of the country? It's well, a wonderful part of the country, <laughs> really. Yeah. I had a fantastic time researching there, um, mm-hmm. but it's always different when you go looking for research because everything's fascinating. And right. I have to say that most of the Black Swamp is has disappeared, it's been drained, it's been built over, but there are still some nature reserves. And mm-hmm. um, one of the things the swamp was notorious for is the mosquitoes. They used to um, swarm, and people living in the swamp had to wear mittens even in August and um, and wrap their heads in scarves, and they'd... they'd 
um, burn smudge pots to try to keep the mosquitoes away. And one day I was walking through one of these nature reserves and suddenly they swarmed. It was only May and I never th- thought there'd be any mosquitoes, but it was a nightmare. And I was, I was waving my hands around and running around for a good 15 minutes to try to get away from them. And then these hikers came along um, who took pity on me and and lent me some of their insect repellent. But mm-hmm. it gave me a very small, um, uh, a little window into what life would have been like there. There are every year some number of people carried off by mosquitoes near Toledo, never to be seen again. Um, they just even fly now. off with them. Even now. Even now. That's uh, a claim to fame from Toledo, Ohio. Uh, I don't know whether you were able to see this uh, in your research, but at one point there was uh, what's known as the Toledo War uh, between Michigan and Ohio. Ohio lost, and we got Toledo. (laughs) And so... With no shots fired, but I, I imagine it was something along I, the lines of "No, you take it. No, you take it." But I, I read about that, mm-hmm. and I, I thought this is insane. I think I better not go into this crazy bit of politics. So I think I set the book a few years before that, but it really made me laugh when I read about it. Right? Yeah. So. I'm not sure it makes people from Toledo laugh. Sorry, people from Toledo. Toledo. You can blame it all on me. I, I, I was there for 21 years, just uh, near Toledo. Um, and, and that was enough. Uh, no, it's a wonderful place. So tell me about uh, when you are dealing with people like uh, Johnny Appleseed Chapman or William Loeb um, that are real people and that appear as characters in your book. Because you mentioned in an earlier interview, quote, I like having real people in fiction. They anchor a story and make what is made up feel more real. So what are your your limits for using real people in fiction. What all can you attribute to them? How careful do you feel you have to be, or do you have a lot of license? Uh, I I often choose people where there is quite a lot of leeway about what I could say. Um, they usually don't have really complete biographies, so there are uh, questions about how they're, they are interpreted. I mean, Johnny Appleseed is a case in point. We know quite a bit about him, but actually we don't really know him. He, he never left any writings behind, except for a sort of bills of fare and things like that. So I, I like... Um, playing with her biography, but I also rather, I I always try to stick to the facts if we definitely know about them. Um, And I I like to have them in the book because it means that um, it it provides a kind of verisimilitude to everything else around him. So um, if you know that Johnny Appleseed existed when he appears in the book, and he, he actually plays a quite small but a significant part in the book. So he doesn't have too many lines, but he does provide the apples that um, get Sadie Goodenough awfully drunk all the time. And so he has something to answer for there. And I think that because you, the reader, know that he existed, it, it makes you kind of assume that Sadie Goodenough existed too, and James Goodenough and this orchard and the kids around them. And um even though you might sort of say to yourself afterwards, oh, actually, yes, of course, it's all fiction, but Johnny Appleseed was there. So it makes you, um, it feels like a, a real uh, concrete thing. And the same thing happened in this book with, uh, with California. The book is basically divided into two parts. There's the Ohio section in 1838, and then there's the, um, the California section in the 1850s uh, gold rush. And uh, where a son from the Goodenough family ends up, like 20, 30 years later. And um, 
he's uh, Robert Goodenough, who's sort of the, in a way, the hero of the book. He is uh, very fond of trees because his father taught him how to look after trees when they were planting the orchard. And when he ends up in California, he goes among redwoods and giant sequoias, and he meets a, an English naturalist named William Lobb, who also really existed. He was also kind of a tree man who dealt in the commerce of trees, um, just the way Johnny Appleseed did. And he uh, used to send back seeds and saplings of conifers from California to um, to England, to a nursery in England, where uh, gardeners liked to plant exotic trees and plants. And so he also, as I said, he kind of anchors the California section because it really, he really did exist, and there are a lot of things that about him and what he did that I could draw upon and and kind of weave into the more fictional elements of the story, and again give them more more veracity and authority. Mm-hmm. And when you were, did you get the opportunity to travel uh, around the area in California? You had before we started uh, earlier. We were talking about you had traveled around Ohio. Uh, did you get that opportunity with California to make it real to yourself uh, as the writer to say these are the areas that I want to to bring out in the book? Oh yes, I I did definitely went to California. I think I would find it really hard to write about a place I haven't been to. I mean, it's not impossible. We do have imagination, and now we have Google Maps and Google Earth, and it's it's a lot easier than it used to be. But nonetheless, I like to actually be there. Um, it's like the difference between seeing a painting online and actually being in the room with it. it uh, you just need to be there. And uh, in particular, there are um, a big scenes set among this in this grove called Calaveras Grove, which has is where they first discovered giant sequoias. Now, redwoods are really tall, like they're the tallest trees on earth, but the sequoias are um, are sort of the widest. They have a, uh, they're also red, and they're also really tall, but they have really wide trunks, like 30, um, 30 feet in diameter, massive. And mm-hmm. um, they were discovered in Calaveras Grove in 1852, and, um, and William Lobb went to see them, and he started sending back seeds, and I decided that I would have my, my hero, Robert Goodenough, um, go there as well. And I had to go there because there's a scene like at the beginning of when, when Robert goes into this grove first and he looks up at the trees and he goes up to them and he touches them and he sees them. And I, I couldn't I couldn't possibly describe all that without actually being there myself. And so I went and I had a wonderful time. And one of the first things I noticed about how people respond to these trees is that they, they do this thing where they stand way back and look at it and then they stand up really close and look up at it. And whenever they go up really close and look up at it, they always put their hand on the trunk um, almost to steady themselves. And mm-hmm. so I just that little detail, I thought, I probably never would have worked that out if I hadn't actually been here myself. And and uh, so I added it into the book. And another thing about the trees is that their branches, their lower branches tend to break off as they grow. And so the branches of the tree start don't start for a good 100 feet um, above the ground, which means that you don't have the wind blowing through the needles close to you. So it's actually really quiet. And also not many trees grow under them because of the, the nature of the shade they provide. And there's not much as much undergrowth making noise. So it's actually really quiet there. 
Um, and the uh, they also these trees are like a thousand years old, some of them, and um, they've grown up over time. The the area, the undergrowth, the the, the dirt around them be, has become compacted with a thousand years worth of needles, and so it's very springy and soft and quiet. And all of these things I just wouldn't have thought of to write about if I hadn't actually gone to see them myself. So I find that um, that traveling and being in the place very important. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it comes back to one of the other things you said in the interview that I was mentioning earlier, because you said you don't write with a message in mind, but would you, you would like your readers to, quote, look at the landscape around them, especially the trees, and ask how it reflects their lives, what choices do they make to move or to stay based on their surroundings. And I love your description of how you knew the details to put in about the trees because you were there. But tell me about the impact of your surroundings and on you now, because you're living in the UK, right? Um, yeah. Where they have some of our stolen redwoods. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they have some. But, you know, it's a very different environment, say, than Ohio or California. And how does that impact you? Um, was that something that you, you know, had to set aside while you were writing this book uh, because it's so different? Or what's it like for you to be somewhere uh, totally different from what you're writing about? It's... um. It, it is a tricky one because I, I actually think the two countries, the UK and the US, are, um, are the people, uh, although we share a language, we are um, very, very different because, partly because of our history, but a lot is to do, I think, with landscape and geography. Um, you know, in just the most basic way, there's a lot more space in the States because it just is a much bigger country. And um, so there's... The, the, the streets are wider, it's easier to drive, it's easier to park, um, at, you, you have the houses are bigger, you have a bit more space in each room, um, it all feels like, and, and it means that people can kind of expand, I don't mean physically, I don't mean Americans are bigger than UK, it's not uh, British people, it's more like you can almost expand emotionally, and um, and I think uh, British people are more, um, you know, it's it's more cramped here. We're just a little, uh, especially in London. Wow, I mean, driving. I remember when I first lived here and was learning to drive in the street. I've been driving for years in the states, but here it's not just that it's on the left hand side of the street, and it's that the the streets are narrower and kind of crabby, and everything's like ah, and and parking here was a nightmare. So it's just. That sort of thing, and the and the house, the way the flow of the rooms is very different. It doesn't flow; everything's kind of shut in. And um, and I think uh, I I think that I'm aware of the differences enough that it's not really a problem for me to move on to to writing about something that's so different. Because to be honest, you know, a redwood grove or a sequoia grove is a really is a unique experience for anyone, whether you're American or. Or European, um, it's it, you're not likely to spend a lot of time, and most Americans don't spend a lot of time in sequoia gro- groves or redwoods groves. So it's a new experience being there anyway. And I think maybe I I've just been around long enough. I've been writing long enough to know how to open myself up to the new experience, mm-hmm. and then to write about that. Yeah, that is that's a a, a great way to think about writing and to uh, to end our, our time together to talk about how, you know, the movement of you as a writer allows you that sort of freedom 
And that is a, a very hopeful and positive way to look at writing. Uh, because uh, so many times people uh, describe writing as, you know, it's something I do, but it's all, also so difficult. So I like the positivity in that. <laughs> Thank you. I, yeah, I could talk about the difficult part of it, but I'm not going to. No, 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 no. It's great. No. We'll just, we'll leave all the difficult parts in my description of Toledo, Ohio. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Tracy Chevalier, thank you very much for talking to me today, and I really look forward to you coming to the Thurber House on Monday, March 21st, to talk about your new book, At the Edge of the Orchard. Thank you. For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative. Be creative.